This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. Whirly Gig is a new book that takes an interesting look at the making of Time Out of Mind. It's named after a note in the recording logs that referenced the organ Jim Dickinson was playing on the sessions. Even after focusing deeply on Time Out of Mind for a year now, nearly everything in this book was new to me because the author had two unique advantages in writing it. First, he'd been a personal friend of Jim Dickinson for over a decade before Jim's death in 2009. Dickinson was a truly legendary musician and producer who'd played with an incredible number of people, including Aretha Franklin, Sam and Dave, Ry Cooter, and many more, and produced a lot of great records too. But he played an instrumental role in the making of Time Out of Mind, as you'll hear today. Secondly, the author had been to Tulsa and had the chance to listen to all 500 recordings from the Time Out of Mind sessions and see all the written lyrics and other materials. Each of these advantages gave him information and perspective that nobody else has had on the making of Time Out of Mind, a set of first-person stories and a review of the actual historical records, memories plus facts. You can find a lengthy review of the book on our Substack, which I hope you'll take a few minutes to read. There's a link in the show notes. The author's name is John Lewis, and today we're going to talk to John about the writing of the Whirligig book and the making of Time Out of Mind. John is an award-winning writer and the editor-at-large of Baltimore Magazine. He's written for Rolling Stone, Spin, The Oxford American, and others, and has been a guest lecturer at John Hopkins University and others. This will not be the fattest book on your Bob Dylan bookshelf, and actually it may be the slimmest, but every page is compelling. The layout and illustrations are great, which you can't say about many Dylan books, and it leaves you with just a better sense of what it was like when they made Time Out of Mind. It's just a good book. If you're hearing this, you're not on our premium feed, so you'll hear just a part of my conversation with John. There are links in the show notes to become a premium member via our website or Substack, which gets you extended versions of our 20-plus podcasts on Time Out of Mind, access to special posts like the lead-up series we did before the Fragments box set, and much more. Plus, members fund this work and make it possible, so any support is appreciated. We even have a tip jar now in case you want to help but aren't ready for a full premium membership. If you're new to our podcast, check out the back catalog. We've talked to Time Out of Mind engineer Mark Howard, remix engineer Michael Brower, author Grayley Heron, who wrote the first book on Time Out of Mind, author Michael Gray, who wrote the first serious Dylan book over 50 years ago, Dylan scholar Scott Warmoth, who showed us where a lot of the lyrics from Time Out of Mind came from, and many others. All of these great episodes are waiting in your podcast app, so check them out. Now, here's my conversation with Whirligig author John Lewis. Hi, welcome. Thanks for joining us to talk about uh, this great book. Whirly gig. Let's back up a step though. Tell me how you came to Dylan and your background with Dylan, and then we'll go into how you picked this and got to Tulsa. You know, someone who loves Dylan, Dylan had always been kind of a giant 
in my musical world. Um, although like a lot of folks or older folks, I never really felt like I had a Dylan album that came out in real time that I could call my own. You know, I mean, listening to the albums from the 60s and the 70s, it felt like I was coming in, like I'm, I'm 58 now. So I started to really kind of like, you know, subscribing to Rolling Stone and stuff in like 1978, 79. And so much of the talk was, ah, Dylan's over, you know, or, or you, it, it made me feel like, well, I, I missed the boat, you know, and then the eighties hit. And in some respects that kind of reinforced some of that, you know, it's, there, there wasn't like a great critical, critically acclaimed Dylan record. And to my ears, time out of mind changed that in such a huge way. Um, and I felt like from the very first notes, from the very first few minutes of it, I think one of your guests, um, was it Jeff Slade who was talking about that? Who, yeah, who Jeff says that, the day off when he got the album, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I can relate to that. I got an advance from Columbia. I did a lot of you know, writing about music and musicians. And, and I remember putting it in, and I say in my book, I actually turned my head and looked at the speakers. I mean, I was like, wow, this sounds like we're on to something completely different, completely new. It sounded to me like, um, I don't know, maybe it was more honest. It was more upfront. And it was kind of beautiful. I mean, it was, it was great. And, you know, Lovesick was the first song on that sampler. And I just remember thinking too, like, was he going to be able to sustain this over the duration of an album? And um, he, he was. And at that point too, I had heard a lot about the album. Um, from Jim Dickinson, who, who played on it and who I had known for a number of years. Transition that, so that's 25 years ago, to deciding to work on this project. Obviously, Jim, I'm sure, plays a factor. And then getting yourself down to Tulsa and into the archives. Yeah, I mean, I had known Jim for a number of years. We were introduced by a mutual friend who said, you know, you guys would probably hit it off. And we did. And Jim and I talked every couple of weeks, probably from the mid-90s, until he passed in 2009. And Jim was a fantastic, maybe the best storyteller I've ever come across in my life. And he almost felt like he had an obligation as a kind of oral historian to pass on what he experienced and what he knew, which was fantastic for somebody like me who cares about these things. And if you are familiar with people who work with Dylan, most of them do not speak candidly if at all, about the experience. Um, Jim was just the opposite. Jim would talk about the smallest details. So I say that because I had had any number of conversations about time out of mind from the week after Jim returned from Miami, <clears throat> going forward to when the album was released and getting his thoughts on that, and then just having it come up over time you know, about Dylan's creative process and him thinking back on those sessions. So I had a fair amount of kind of inside information before I went. When I heard that there was an archive in Tulsa, I got in touch, said that, you know, I had some information and was just curious about, I wanted to review all of their time out of mind material. Um, they have a, you know, like a, an archival 
search mechanism where you can see, and then you have to request what you want and have a research proposal. So I submitted all that and basically wanted to see everything they had, um, including scraps written on hotel stationery in the couple years leading up to time out of mine. Um, you know, um, letters with Columbia records, the, uh, the lyric sheets that were available, um, and then the digital audio files that are archived there. And that was a substantial amount of stuff to go through. So I went down there. My, my proposal was approved, and I flew down there. I got in just before pandemic, before the lockdown. I went down at the end of January in 2020. Wow. And basically, I mean, I'm accustomed to writing you know, magazine profiles, reviews. Um, I kind of went down there keeping it open-ended. And I really wanted to, I mean, I'm not a Dylan scholar, but I had heard so much about the sessions for the week that Jim was there. And then over the years had heard things about the Teatro sessions prior and then how, you know, the finished uh, production went. So I was really curious. I wanted to go down and review all of the, you know, the lyric stuff. But I also wanted to hear chronologically from start to finish, really, the arc of those sessions. And, of course, I was curious if I could hear any changes or anything substantive when Jim appeared, uh, when he turned up in Miami. Okay, interesting. So I'm going to read a quote from your book now. I've got a series of them to to kick off some of our discussion. So in terms of that audio, you said, the audio ranged from skeletal demos to polished mixes and even included Dylan and Lenoir in between song banter. It was revelatory. <clears throat> Let's talk about Oxnard first. Obviously, we're, it turns out we're doing this after we've all had a little time with fragments and we've got um, seven, I think, if I'm right, tracks from Oxnard now. Tell us more about what you heard at Oxnard. Again, this is for the diehards, and we, we sort of care about those noodling and, and those songs taking shape. What, what more about that in the Oxnard tapes were you able to hear? Well, well, for one, let me say I love Fragments. I mean, I think it's a great, it's a great set. Thank goodness it exists. I mean, I, I, I can't get enough of it, um, in part because I thought I would never hear some of this stuff ever again, you know, when I left Tulsa. Um, so that said, it's also a much, much, much different experience than listening to a lot of things um, from skeletal to it's coming together to, you know, different, different takes, different mixes of those takes. I mean, there's, there's so much at, in Tulsa. Um, that it felt also a little frustrating listening to fragments. Um, now, the thing I thought that one of the things I thought was most revelatory was that studio banter. Um, the tape is rolling, and one of the first things I hear Dylan say is, and this is in the book, he says to Lanois, what do you do for musicians around here? <laughs> and um, which is really fascinating when you consider what the time out of mind sessions became in Miami. So Dylan right. shows up at Lanois studio and it's close to Dylan's home. 
And he shows up and it's uh, Dylan, it's Lanois, it's Tony Mangurian. And I saw somebody say in, that they thought um, Tony, uh, Dylan's bass player, you know, uh, was there. But I didn't, actually, I didn't see yeah. evidence of, of that. I, I, I didn't hear, see or hear I, I actually- that. He's listed in the liner notes, and coincidentally, um, I got to talk to Tony two nights ago, and I oh. asked him, and he was not there. Okay, good, because I mean, I, I had seen that, and I thought, geez, I mean, I didn't, I don't recall coming across anything that he was present. So it's fascinating that, you know, Dylan shows up there. He's got this great batch of lyrics in process. And and kind of in his head, he had said he wanted to do something. He was impressed with with Beck, and it seemed like Lanois kind of wanted to run with that, doing looped percussion, um, and some of that stuff that I heard. Um, and it's not on it's not on the on fragments. I think I say in the book, it almost sounded like. John Spencer blues explosion outtakes a couple of the loops and takes and definitely not a direction that, you know, I'm glad they didn't pursue it. Um, but there were a number of directions, but then there were some really beautiful things that emerged. I mean, there's some, I mean, you can hear it. Some of those songs from Teatro are stunning. I mean, they're beautiful. They're incredible. And I can understand some of Lanois' frustration because later on too, he even referenced some of that wanting Dylan to go back to, uh, kind of the way he did something, and as you're well aware, he's usually not up, not up for that. Um, but you could hear, and also in the early Criteria sessions, that studio banter, a lot of frustration on Dylan's part. Frustrations with saying things like, you know, are we going to put that beat to it again? That came up a number of times. So it it it, it sounded like uh, Lanois was sort of pushing that. And I say pushing that, it was something too that Dylan expressed interest in at the outset. Um, but it seemed like it generated a fair amount of frustration and not anything close to a clear direction for, uh, for a project, you know, for what would become a completed project. So in Oxnard, did you get the sense that they were making an album or they were fooling around and getting to know each other? I, I, I think they were kind of casting about a little bit for what it would be. Um, I, I think because they potentially had different ideas of where it could go. To me, none of that stuff feels like it was a completed project. So I, they, they definitely didn't get there to where I felt like what I heard at Teatro that you could take, say, 11 or however many songs and make an album of it and it would feel cohesive. I would say no, not at all. Um, so I think there was a certain amount of casting about, but I also think, too, that there was, you know, going into it, it didn't feel like, oh, these are demos that we're going to take and move to Miami. That's yeah, that, what. That, that, yeah, that Miami yeah. move has always been a little mysterious in the way everyone talks about it, right? I talked to Mark about it and, and Dan's talked about it. And it's just like, Bob said, we got to go. We're going, this is where he picked. Boom. 
which, you know, Bob gets to do what he gets, wants to do, but, you know, and then as you point out, the, the difference between, you know, a, basically a producer and one musician and an engineer and a dozen or 15, whatever it wound up being people, there's a huge night and day happened. Um, but how it fit, which is what you're saying. I mean, that's why it's interesting what it felt like then. It clearly became something very specific and different when they got to, to Miami. To my mind, it's fascinating that in so many ways, it became the polar opposite of what was going on at Teatro. Um, how? Well, it went from like, what are you doing for here for musicians to 12 people playing simultaneously um, in the same room. It went from uh, Lanois' kind of home studio um, in a place where, you know, I guess Lanois, Mark, Howard, and Dylan could, if they wanted, ride their motorcycles to work each day. Um, it went as far away, almost geographically, as you could possibly get in the United States from that spot, the Teatro, to Miami, Florida. So it's fascinating to me, too, that even geographically, they, it, it, they turned it completely upside down. The studio itself, as Mark Howard describes, it's not like it was kind of state-of-the-art, everything was completely set up, just show up. I mean, from what I've read with Mark, that, you know, they loaded up equipment, they trucked it across country, and when he got there, he was... I don't want to say mortified, but it was a challenge to set it up in a way that would be, um, if not optimal, but that would work for a Daniel Lanois, Mark Howard engineered uh, project. And um, yeah, and the even the criteria wasn't uh, automatic. They tried to get other studios. They tried to get a Masonic temple. Right. They tried. They called the Bee Gees. Right. <laughs> So, yeah. And they ended up with criteria, which, again, to me is is fascinating, um, in part because it's where uh, when when Jim Dickinson was kind of like part of an Atlantic Records rhythm section or house band South, the Dixie Flyers, they worked out of Criteria Studios in Miami. So um, really fascinating that they showed up there with 12 musicians and the last person through the door that they summon is, is Jim. So early in the book, and I don't have marked here whether it was still at Teatro or right as they arrived at Criterion, but you say the struggle for the soul of Time Out of Mind had begun. Um, so tell us when you came to that realization in the tapes or in talking to Jim. I guess Jim came probably a little, a little bit later, so this sounds like something you heard on the tapes. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating, Craig, too, because. It, it, it was kind of strange because at one point I realized I'm knowing a lot more about this project than Jim ever knew because I was hearing the chronological, like the, the skeletal criteria stuff going through like the Beck stuff, the kind of gems, you know, like Dylan at the piano at Teatro. It's like, wow, that's incredible. That's beautiful. I'd love to hear an album of just that to so scrapping that to, you know, 12 people. Um, so I was, um, <laughs> the, the struggle for the soul of time out of mind, I think I started to realize that when they made the move, some strange things kind of happened. Um, the, the first one being that <laughs> their tapes of the day, two days before Dylan shows up, 
Lanois has the band there and he's running through the songs. And at, at first I thought, uh, am I hearing this wrong? This sounds like, what am I hearing here? <laughs> it's Lanois running through the songs from Time Out of Mind, which he had, you know, heard some, you know, Teatro done, recorded some. And he's cueing the band to these crescendos that are almost like right out of Dylan 1966. And he's singing the songs as well, in some cases making up lyrics, in some cases singing the lyrics that ended up, you know, because again, they were still in process. But it So there's was, the album we need. We need the Lenoir Sings Tomb album. <laughs> well, there's something, it, it's, it's really an, an odd experience hearing that. It's, it's not only odd hearing him leading the band, it's hearing these songs that we all know and love, but it's like coaxing them back to 1966. And I, I think my jaw dropped when I heard that because the teatro, as we were saying, as you were saying too, it presents possibilities. You know, I mean, I, when I listen to teatro, you know, you could go to criteria and think like, okay, we're going to do some kind of beat heavy thing. We're going to do that. We're going to do like a gospel inflected thing. We're going to do a blues. We're going to do um, almost like that power trio rock thing, you know, big, big sound. It was really kind of disorienting to hear Lanois leading through the band and, you know, whether he was thinking, geez, if I could get Dylan to sound like 1966 they're going to talk about me like i'm the risen christ because you know i was able to coax this classic dylan out of him uh again so that's kind of what the band was playing before dylan showed up and it's it's very kind of strange and and hey i give lanois personally a lot of credit because i love time out of mind so much and he the finished product, I mean, to me, it's a masterpiece. I love it. I loved it the first time I heard it. I love it today. But some of the, you, you mentioned in, you, you wrote about, or like you, you mentioned intentionality. Some of the intent to me seemed like odd directions, odd paths to choose to try to go down. Um, and that's the one thing that I feel like, like I never had a problem with Lanois' production. I think it's fantastic. I love the mystery and the meaning that it, you know, sort of underscores. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a great batch. But when you hear, again, like this arc from beginning to end, you think, or I, I was thinking like, thank God Dylan kind of had a sense intuited where these songs should go because he was presented time and time again with opportunities to move them in a direction that, you know, time out of mind would have been nothing like. I mean, early criteria sessions, uh, Dylan is saying, again, more frustration and the studio banter. He's saying things like, what, are we going to do it with that beat again? Are we going to put that beat to it again? I'm confused by this beat. What are we, you know, what are we doing with this beat? He says it over and over again, and Lanois would say, yeah. Or then Lanois would say, well, let's try it with the crescendos. 
So, you know, he would try and circle back and like, okay, we'll try it if we're not going to do the beat thing. So that kind of Beck beat <laughs> approach and then that uh, with the crescendos, it, it comes up um, a number of times. And again, Dylan, to his credit, I think steered it, steered it in another direction. I heard somebody recently say that it was Lanois fighting Dylan for that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think there's so many, again, time out of mind is so great. I think it lends like a ton of interpretation. I think there's so many truths. I would love to hear extensive interviews with everybody involved. And that's why I think what you're doing is so fantastic. But that's not the sense that I got. I didn't get the sense that Lanois was sort of trying to wrestle Dylan towards this vision that he had. I got almost the opposite sense, that Lanois was trying to move him in these directions and that Dylan wasn't buying into it. And then I think that was also the source of a lot of this you know, tension that we, that we hear about in those sessions. All right, well, let's move on to Jim Dickinson a little bit because you know we talked about Teatro, we talked about the beginning of of Miami. Um, you know, Jim shows up on the fourteenth, but give us you know you had this relationship with him, which is incredible. Um, tell us a little bit about Jim and and then lead into his impact and and appearance uh, in, in Miami. Sure, well, I mean, um, you know, folks can look up Jim's credits. I mean, he played on Sticky Fingers, Piano, and Wild Horses. He you know, Aretha Franklin, Spirit in the Dark. He produced Big Star's third album. He produced The Replacements, Pleased to Meet Me. He just has an incredible resume. Played live with people like Little Richard, Chuck Berry. You know, he's just been, it's like he's seen it all practically from the inside. Yeah. Um, so when Jim got back, I talked to Jim the week after he returned from Criteria, and he was like buoyant. I mean, he was... <laughs> for one, he said that the sessions were like kind of the craziest, super professional. I mean, he said he's hardly ever seen someone so professional as Bob Dylan on the, on those sessions. But when he was picked up at the airport, um, I think a roadie picked him up and said that there were 11 people <laughs> there before him. And he knew Augie Myers. He knew Jim Keltner. I think the other players he, he didn't really know or have a personal relationship with. Um, he assumed that they were all in hotels being called as they needed to lay down parts. And he said that to the guy who was driving him, I guess, to the studio or wherever. And the guy said, no, they're, they're all assembled in the studio playing simultaneously. <laughs> and, and, and Jim was stunned to hear that. Um, and, you know, and we all know, I mean, the, the instrumentation is kind of nuts and well, well, for one, Jim had told me that there would be this kind of chaos of everyone playing together. It would all come together. And he said, it would be a thing of like stunning beauty. Um, and then may just sort of fall apart. What I heard that kind of came closest to that. Oh, and the other thing too, is that he didn't wear uh, headphones when he was. So on the floor, he said Dylan didn't wear headphones. He wanted to hear what Dylan was hearing. So he also said what was coming through the headphones was completely shitty. It sounded awful. So he heard 
you know, the 11, 12 people playing simultaneously, this kind of chaos dissonance, like congealing into something totally beautiful, maybe falling apart. He experienced that in real time. I don't really hear anything like that on fragments, as great as fragments is. The thing that I heard closest to that was a take of uh, Can't Wait. And I, again, I write about it in the book from like almost you know, 15, 30 second intervals of how it unfolds. And it's Jim had just arrived. It's January 14th. Everybody had been playing for a while. Um, there's a version of Can't Wait that was done at the Teatro that actually sounds pretty good. It sounds, it's, uh, I think it's on Fragments too. Um, there's another version that they did that I think is also included. It was like, and this was done on January 5th. It's like a Pink Floyd version of Can't Wait. It, to, to my ears, that's kind of bizarre and strange that it would go in that direction. But um, so when Jim arrived on the 14th, the take of Can't Wait that I heard that I found so revelatory, you initially hear Jim was playing um, uh, a Wurlitzer electric piano. And that's hence the title of my book, Whirly Gig, because he was identified in session sheets as Whirly on track 20. So you hear him, it sounds like he's just sitting down at his instrument and he's just playing. Nobody else is playing. And then he starts just kind of like laying down this groove. And you hear Dylan a couple seconds into it go, yeah. And which was rare because there are very few times where Dylan commented on someone's performance or what was going on in the room as a take was started. And Jim plays like even a deeper groove. And maybe That's all we have time for in this episode, but the discussion goes on for another 30 fascinating minutes. Here's a little bit from the extended conversation. Jim was saying, and you could only imagine like Dylan in his cowboy hat, you know, like walking through the halls at Hume's high school because classes were in. One of the first things he said when he heard the completed time out of mind was so much of it isn't there. I actually took off the headphones and went to Mark Davidson's office, like with tears in my eyes. And I said, I just found the seven and a half minutes where time out of mind becomes time out of mind. He sought out Lanois, went, visited him at his hotel to say, you know, hey, this is happening. I'm sorry to sort of put you on the spot here. But he said, I realize, you know, I am kind of overstepping a bit here. But he did say, if Bob Dylan asks my opinion on something, I'm going to give him an answer. It settles into this groove. And to my ears, it's what Time Out of Mind is a project as a whole kind of settles into after all these false starts, casting about for direction, all these players, it really feels like in that moment, something special really happens. To hear the full interview of this and all of our episodes, follow the link in the show notes and become a premium member. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.